Hey everybody, welcome back to Upon This Rock. My name is Max Thomas. Thank you so much for joining me on the pod today. And we're going to jump right into our study of uh, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, I really do hope that you're enjoying this. I hope you've checked out the link uh, in uh, the the uh, description below uh, to the full set of notes. I wrote essentially a short commentary on the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And uh, what I'm using uh, to even uh, go through the material here on the podcast. And so you can use that to follow along or as your own study material. And uh, remember, the goal here is, uh, I said at the very uh, first episode of this season, is I, w- I want to hopefully use this as a place to uh, show how we can better read Scripture, how we can trace uh, arguments or ideas, repeated words, repeated ideas, images uh, through uh, a story, how they tie backwards and forwards. And I'm not trying to make uh, a whole ton of claims as far as this is exactly what this means or this is exactly what that means. I, I don't want to. I don't want to go too far down that road. We'll do maybe a, you know a little bit of that. But my hope more is to show hey, th- this is. Uh, how the the scriptures kind of work, if I can put it that way. I don't really like putting it that way that, a ton, but uh, this is how the biblical authors wrote. These are some ways that we can read the scriptures uh, just to pay attention on, on a very basic level. You know, this is not getting too deep into allegory and imagery. Uh, this is just noticing the words that are on the page and how um, it's important to be able to recognize them and connect them to uh, previous stories uh, in the Old Testament, and then think about how they reflect forward into the life of Jesus and into the story of Jesus. And just doing that at a very basic level, and um, and hopefully so far you've uh, been picking up on a few things, and today we'll go through a few more uh, as well as we talk about Ezra 7 through 10, uh, which, if you remember, is the second kind of uh, second movement uh, in the, the first broad section of Ezra Nehemiah, uh, which is Ezra 1 through Nehemiah 7, which has kind of three movements in it that talk about the rebuilding of the temple, uh, which is uh, what we just looked at in the previous episodes. Uh, today will be Ezra 7 through 10, talking about uh, Ezra restoring Torah observance. And then uh, Nehemiah 1 through 7 talks about the rebuilding of the wall. And those three kind of sections uh, of Ezra 1 through Nehemiah 7 make the first kind of large movement uh, in this book and uh, make up what is kind of the, the th- really the thrust of the story that everything else is kind of building off of. Um, and um, and we've looked a bunch at uh, how this is connected, particularly back to the prophets, and we'll do a little bit more of that today and uh, into the story of the Exodus, and we'll definitely do more of that today. And we'll just notice some key phrases and we'll notice some key words and some key images, and, uh, and then hopefully you can take some of those on your own and begin to read some of those passages side by side, and uh, just spend some spend some time with them. Um, I just want to make a brief note here um, that Psalm one 
lays out for us how we're meant to read Scripture, and that is in in a meditative sense, uh, in a way that we read and reread and ponder and think and pray and churn over and over in our head. That is the kind of person uh, that brings fruit from what the Scriptures are offering. That's the kind of soil in which the, the tree of Scripture grows up and bears fruit. And so, again, my goal here is just to make some observations and show maybe how some things work and then kind of send everybody on on their way to go and uh, and spend time as that Psalm 1 kind of person. So with that, let's jump into Ezra 7 through 10. All right, Ezra 7 through 10. Um, This is the second major section of uh, Ezra Nehemiah. Well, it's the, I should put that back. In the first major section, this is the second movement. I I hope that makes sense. If not, look at the notes. You'll you'll see the the big uh, layout that I have there of of the whole whole book. Um, So in, in chronological time, this section jumps forward um, at least like 60 years. So it depends on when you think Ezra returned. Um, popular view has been he returned in 458 BC. Some people think that it was more like 428 or even 398 BC, depending on how you date uh, Artaxerxes and which Artaxerxes it w- it was, whether it was the first or second Artaxerxes. So but it's at least 60 years. So we just go from five or from chapter six to chapter seven, and we jump forward at least 60 years, maybe close to 100 years um, in, in the narrative. So a, a, a ton has happened, an entire generation has grown up um, in this time period. And, you know, we just, we just keep, keep on reading. And even that, something like that, and paying attention to uh, time notations, it gives us a point to just reflect on the story real quick and continue to keep it in its proper view, um, that this didn't happen overnight, that this is a long story that is being written by God uh, in and through His people. And uh, and then we can think about all kinds of ways, obviously, that applies to the story of Israel uh, culminating in Jesus in general, and then even into the story of the church and, and into our own lives as well. Um, so Ezra 7 through 10, those four chapters, um, really kind of break up into a, f- a few subsections. So Ezra 7 and 8, um, Ezra is commissioned and leads what is actually the third wave of returnees. So Ezra is leading the third wave of people back uh, to the land. And, then, uh, and that's Ezra 7 and 8. And then Ezra 9 and 10... Uh, pair together, Ezra 9 is is a prayer, and Ezra 10 is this just beautiful, wonderful, really thrilling for most of us uh, problem of mixed marriages, right? We'll get there. Uh, It's usually one of those parts that just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us of why this matters at all and why there's an entire chapter on 
what we should do with these mixed marriages and then genealogies and all that kind of stuff. Uh, we'll get there and, and I'll make a, a few uh, a few comments on that. So, uh, but first, uh, Ezra, so that's kind of the, the broad structure here. Uh, seven and eight kind of are, are a pair and nine and 10 are kind of a pair. Um, seven and eight in particular, and this is on the notes, page 32, if you're, if you're following, uh, seven and eight are structured in, um, a chiasm. I've mentioned that word before. If, if, uh, just to remind you, that is, if you think of kind of a, an arrow, um, pointing, I suppose it would be to the right. So, uh, but where it's, it's this literary structure where the very first unit, matches and corresponds to the very last unit. And then you take a step down and the second unit corresponds to the second to last unit. And so there's these doublets, there's these matching pairs all the way down until you get to uh, the very center point, the, the one where it has no doublet, it has no match, it stands alone. And that is the kind of the center of the chiasm. And that can a lot of times be uh, the most important point of this this kind of structure. It can be the turning point of the structure. It's something that the author is wanting to highlight in the narrative, and that's why it's being put there. And what you're meant to do as a reader uh, is, if you're reading, is to you're reading and you're paying careful attention to what's going on, and maybe you come across a prayer, and then you come across a little bit later another prayer that sounds like a prayer that you've just read. And then you also remember that, you know, Ezra was commissioned, and you're reading again about people being commissioned, and then you read about there's a journey uh, to Jerusalem, and you remember, wait, wasn't there already something about a journey to Jerusalem? And it just, it's it's structured enough to, hopefully, to trigger, as a reader, to trigger you to say, wait, there's something here. And then you begin to, you take a few moments and you begin to pair those things together and the structure kind of comes together pretty easily, actually. And um, most of the time, sometimes it's a little bit more difficult, but that's why we have uh, experts and theologians and people who know Greek and Hebrew, uh, where some of the stuff maybe isn't as straightforward to, to lay people like me and you. And, um, and so we just take advantage of those resources when we can. And, uh, and, but you come to the point. So Ezra 7 and 8 is, is um, laid out in one of those chiasms. And I'm not going to go through every pair of them, but the, the middle point um, is uh, chapter 8, uh, 1 through 14. And it's where Israel is um, united. And so by, by placing the question then is why is the, the reuniting of Israel? placed at the center. And I think what the, the author is trying to highlight here is their, their primary theological concern for this section, uh, the point that they are trying to make, is that they are trying to highlight that this is a kind of fulfillment, uh, or at least a step towards the fulfillment of the unity of God's people and uh, them coming into covenant faithfulness with him, right? Um, and so that is the, the general concern of this section. As Ezra is bringing forth the 
the, the Torah, as he's bringing forth the law, as he's calling people back to covenant faithfulness, the, the crux of this entire section is people doing just that, is reuniting with each other as God's people under God's covenant. And that obviously should bring us back to when was another time that God's people came together uh, under his word, were formed as a single people, brought out of exile, out of a foreign land, um, it, this should ring some bells, right? This is Mount Sinai. This is coming out of Egypt, standing at the mountain, God's word coming forth, and him calling them my my people, my special treasure, uh, and all of these things. And Israel is formed in that day as God's people in a very specific, a very specific way. And so this is mirroring and, and echoing all of that. And again, you can read then those as readers were meant to read both of those stories side by side, uh, separate uh, uh, next to each other, I should say. Um, I do want to make a note here on Ezra because it serves kind of that general claim that we were just talking about. Um, so Ezra, the, the section opens by introducing us to this new character named Ezra and does through so through a genealogy. Uh, Hip, hip, hooray, right? We all love genealogies. Uh, but this genealogy is also laid out uh, as a, a little chiasm, right? And it just has three sections. So it opens by introducing us to Ezra. And then we get seven priests uh, who are listed after the temple was destroyed. And then we get a, a, a listing of uh, Azariah, who's the first priest in Solomon's temple. And then we get seven priests from before the temple was destroyed. And then we come back to Aaron. So Ezra matches Aaron. And then you get seven priests on either side of the temple being destroyed. And then you have Azariah, who's the center of the chiasm, who was the first priest in Solomon's temple, right? And if you just actually read the genealogy, there's a there's a matching one in First Chronicles 6, and you read those two next to each other, and you realize that there's a whole bunch of generations missing here in Ezra and Nehemiah, that the, the author has just cut entire generations out. And so it's not that there's actually seven generations, you know, uh, and seven priests before and after the temple was destroyed. It's, these are seven that have been picked, and it's seven on purpose. Obviously, the the number of completion mirroring the days of of uh, creation back in Genesis 1, all of this kind of stuff. And why does all of this matter? Well, we're, we're being introduced to, let's pause and think, we're being introduced to this person, Ezra. And the person at the center of the chiasm, though, is not Ezra. The person at the center of the chiasm is the first priest in Solomon's temple. Uh, Azariah. And so I, I think by placing Azariah in the center of the chiasm, what the author is trying to do is make a connection between Ezra and the first temple, specifically in Ezra actually being kind of pictured as this priest. Um, now we're going to see in a second that Ezra is also going to be depicted very clearly as a new kind of lawgiver, as a new kind of Moses. If we remember back to the the Exodus story, when Moses is giving the law, 
a large portion of that is actually about the temple being built, or the should say the tabernacle being uh, built, and the Levitical and Aaronic priesthood being set up. And so those two things, the, the giving of the law and the liturgy, the Word of God and the worship of God, are connected from the very beginning, which is also another just fascinating thing that we could think about, the connection from the very beginning, even at Sinai, between the Word of the Lord and the, the law of God and the worship of God of His people, uh, or from His people, and how those two things are connected. And we see those two things connected here, even in the person, uh, and we will, even in the person of, of Ezra. And that becomes explicitly clear by Ezra in this chiasm is matched not with another mention of himself, but actually with a mention of Aaron, who is obviously the very first priest uh, ordained by God in, in the days of Moses. So, so Ezra, the point being made here by the author is that Ezra is being cast as a new kind of high priest in the line of Aaron appointed by God for God's people having come out of exile, right? So again, this is, we should just clearly see echoes of the Exodus here is they've been brought out and the temple now has been rebuilt. And in the Exodus story, we get the, the giving of God's law and the instruction for the tabernacle all coming at the same time. So here it's kind of two different events, but they are happening side by side with each other, right? So it's again, it's all about God's new exodus. He's going to dwell with his people. He's going to be with his people, and the nations are going to come, and so on and so forth. Now, if we if we just keep reading, um, Ezra is a, an ironic figure. He's a priest, but he's also uh, a Moses kind of figure. He is a, a lawgiver uh, kind of figure. And there's all kinds here in 7 and 8, Ezra 7 and 8, all kinds of allusions back to the book of, of Exodus to continue to strengthen uh, this, this point. So I'm just going to give a few. I have a, on page 34 of the notes... I have uh, a whole table of one, two, three, four, five, six, I think seven different um, points in which there are connections between the Exodus story and uh, just Ezra chapters seven and and eight uh, in, in different in different ways. So, uh, for example, in Ezra seven nine, um, we get this mention of uh, the first day of the first month. Um, was the founding of his going up from Babylon. And this coincides with Israel's departure from Egypt on the first day of this first month, which also, um, if ringling link, that, that's Passover, right? First day of the first month, this is, this is Passover. And so, um, again, this is, again, strengthening new, new Exodus stuff. Um, just a few verses later in 14 through 20 of Ezra 7, Uh, Ezra is supported from the royal treasury, and that again mirrors uh, Israel plundering Egypt uh, on their way out, which we also saw back in Ezra chapter 1, right? We saw that same thing happening. So we're we're repeating that whole thing again. Um, Now, if we go all the way to towards the end of chapter 8, Ezra is 
mentions having a three-day rest after arriving in Jerusalem. So he travels and then gets there, and then he rests for three days. And in the book of Joshua, at the very tail end of the Exodus story, uh, right, Joshua takes a three-day rest uh, as Israel is about ready to cross into the Promised Land. And so um, Ezra is, is this, in a sense, this new Joshua who's bringing God's people back into the Promised Land, and when he gets there, he takes, he takes a three-day rest like Joshua. So all this being that Ezra is continuing to fulfill the prophetic vision of the return from exile as this being a, a second exodus and thus uh, fitting um, within the dream of the prophets that goes all the way back to chapter 1 that we looked at uh, with the, the, the word of Jeremiah. In this second exodus, this word of the Lord to Jeremiah, uh, it comes in its climax in Jeremiah's words in chapter 31 of Jeremiah with the new covenant. Remember chapters 30 through th- uh, 33 or the Book of Consolation, but the high point in Jeremiah's prophecy is Jeremiah 31, uh, the New Covenant. And this is, again, Exodus language when God brings them out and makes a covenant with them. And Jeremiah says there will be an, another Exodus, a second Exodus, and God will make a new covenant uh, with his people. Now, we can just pause right there and obviously look ahead to to Christ, who's the new Passover lamb. He is the high priest. He is the temple. He is, um, you know, the new Moses, the lawgiver, the one who stands and speaks God's word as the word of God. And um, he then sits down at a meal, breaks the bread, pours the wine, and says, this is the new covenant being fulfilled. Right, and those are not, he's not just making up that phrase, he's, he's alluding to Jeremiah 31. And so when we read Jeremiah 31, and then we read Ezra and Nehemiah, and then we read Jesus, we should read all three of those, and then all those linking really back to the Exodus story, we should read all three, four of those side by side together. And we can't really understand what Jesus is doing in his death and resurrection and how the biblical authors are framing that with the story of the Exodus and with the story of the second Exodus here um, unless we see those connections. And we can't really understand this story unless we see both backwards, its connection to their flight from Egypt, and forwards to... Uh, Jesus's fulfillment and assumption and death and resurrection as uh, the true Israelite, the true human, the second Adam, and his flight from the Egypt of sin and death and bringing us out from under the rule of the Pharaoh of sin and death, right? So we have to read backwards and forwards. The, The story of Jesus illuminates the story of the Exodus, the story of the Exodus illuminates the story of Jesus, and then all the connections in between, including this one, they get caught up into that movement. And so we need to read all of them side by side. And the the, the joy of Bible study uh, is when we get caught up in that movement, 
when we when we get caught up in the story and we see that everything that that God has been doing is leading us to his son and that the story of his son is not just a story that can be told in you know 16 chapters it is deep and has roots and there are all kinds of things happening beneath the surface that God wants us to dive into and to see and to understand. And it will lead us to surprising, surprising places. It's not surprising for most people um, with even just a, a little bit of Bible knowledge for the Last Supper to take them to Jeremiah 31 because he just references it straight out. It is surprising, I think, for most people for then the Last Supper to take them into the book of Ezra right? And to think about the temple here being rebuilt and to think about him being the one who... So we just looked at um, Ezra coming into Jerusalem and resting for three days and Joshua coming into the promised land and resting for three days. Can I think of anyone else who rests for three days at his work yeah, Jesus, right? When he's dead, when he's dead for three days, right? This is his rest for three days. Um, so we have all of these stories culminating, culminating together. And that is just the beauty of Bible study is seeing those connections, um, and then being that Psalm one kind of person to pause and to meditate on them and allow those stories to just get deep in our heart and see the God in the midst of those stories and fall in love with him and see his beauty and his wonder and his splendor and his power and his mercy and his plan and to realize that we are caught up in that very same story as well. Okay, but I digress. So back to the story here. Um, so the, the author is is um, has already told us that Ezra is a, is a kind of, of, of Moses and a kind of of Aaron. Um, you remember even, um, just to, to flesh this out maybe a little bit more, that the Torah ends with um, someone, a later editor, saying that there has not been a prophet in Israel uh, like Moses even to this day, uh, which was a problem because Moses said that there would be another prophet like me that arises. That's actually one of the real core prophecies of of the Torah. And then Jesus in John, uh, they they call him the prophet at one point, uh, referencing back to that. That's Deuteronomy 18. And so even Jesus was seen as the, the prophet like Moses who's come, right? Uh, but to this point in the story, the Torah ends still looking for the prophet. And so the, the other prophets, they envision that that singular prophet would come and bring about God's word to the whole world, and that would happen in the, the quote-unquote latter days when the Lord would make his way straight and come to Jerusalem into his holy habitation and deliver his people and all the nations would flow to Jerusalem and so on and so forth. And all of that language, all of that language, uh, really one of the places that that culminates is Jeremiah 31, and the New Covenant. And so there's a number of connections between uh, Ezra 7 and 8 and the New Covenant So uh, of Jeremiah 31. So let me just give you a few here. 
uh, both in seven, uh, Ezra 7, 28 and Ezra 8, 15. Uh, it says, I will, uh, and, and I gathered leading men, and I gathered them. So he's, this is Ezra talking about him gathering all of the people together around around the, the law. In Jeremiah 31, uh, it says, I, Yahweh, I will regather them. Uh, and then they echo, and he will gather us together, right? So both have this image of God gathering people to uh, hear his word and come into covenant with his word. Uh, Ezra 7, 6 and 7. It says, uh, Ezra went up from Babylon and from the sons of Israel, there went up, uh, there went up to Jerusalem. Jeremiah 31, it says, come, let us go up. And that's that same phrase, to Zion, to Yahweh, our God. So both have this, this um, image of going, uh, going up to the Lord, going up to Zion, going up to um, Jerusalem. Uh, one more, uh, Ezra 8.21, And then I proclaimed a fast and uh, to seek from him, that's God, a straight way for ourselves, which itself is an echo of Isaiah, uh, the Lord's path being made straight. Uh, but Jeremiah 31, And I will make them walk by the brooks of the water in a straight path in which they will not stumble. Right? So this is a, a promise of the Lord of... Uh, of walking in the straight path, meaning walking in covenant faithfulness, walking in fidelity to God, not stumbling into sin. So, and there's there's more that we could go through, but it's just a few, um, a few for you. So, the author of Ezra and Nehemiah uses a number of of these key phrases, like I just said, with within this section, uh, specifically because Ezra is presented as this new kind of Moses bringing the law and calling God's people to covenant faithfulness. And so by now, for the careful reader, um, the, the claim should be pretty clear that this present story is meant to evoke a sense of expectation and fulfillment in the heart of the reader, uh, that this is the time, this is the moment, this is what the prophets have spoken about. The temple's been rebuilt, the enemies have been overcome. We just read about that in the last section. And now a new Moses has come, one bearing God's word, God's law. Uh, and he's come to renew the covenant and to bring the word of God back to God's people. That This time, this is the prophetic time. That's, the, that's the, what's meant to be portrayed here. It's all these puzzle pieces are being put into place, all these the, the, the chess pieces are moving on the board into their correct position, so to speak. And so um, I'll say that the final observation from these two chapters, and then we'll, I'll make just a few observations from chapters 9 and 10. Um, the final observation worth noting from these two chapters, um, in light of all these hyperlinks back to Moses and the prophets, is the repeated mention of the number 12 in association with all of Israel, right? The, the previous section uh, that we had just looked at in the last episode ends with the mention uh, of 12 he-goats being offered at the temple dedication according to the number of tribes of Israel. That's Ezra 6.17. In 8.24, Ezra sets apart 12 priests for service. Um, and when those who come back from or come back with Ezra, finally arrive in Jerusalem after waiting three days like Joshua and future like Jesus, 
they offer 12 bulls for all of Israel and 12 goats as a sin offering. And this repetition of the number 12, uh, I think, indicates uh, that Ezra sees this return as encompassing all of Israel, not just the two southern tribes that were taken into captivity by Babylon. And this is gets into a huge subject that I just don't have time to get into, of how we understand... Because if you remember in the history after Solomon, the kingdom divided, and there was ten tribes that went to the north, and they, they were called Israel. And then the two tribes uh, in the south, they were called Judah. And Assyria, uh, in the 8th century, took out the ten tribes to the north. And then uh, just the two tribes of the south, Judah, were, were taken by Babylon. And so the question becomes, uh, what do we do? Because... Is, uh, Judah here comes back, but Israel never comes back. Those lost 10 tribes, so to speak, they, they, we have no record of them ever coming back. They go to Assyria and are scattered and never, never return. So how do we make sense of that in light of God's promises? And it seems like here what Ezra is thinking theologically is that his group and his generation, they are the true and encompassing seed of Israel. They represent not just the two tribes of the south, Benjamin and Judah, but they represent all 12 tribes of, of Judah. And so they're bringing all of the tribes in, in their prophetic action, so to speak, and into their prophetic story. Okay, Ezra 9 through 10, we'll, we'll do this one a little bit briefer. I, I would just say... Um, just because it gets a little bit more technical because of some of the, the details, but I think it really is worth reading um, in the notes if you, if you download those. But I will, I will make a, a few, um, few observations here. First, is so Ezra 9 and 10 is all about this issue of intermarriage. And... The people were uh, marrying with uh, the peoples of the land. Israel, Israelites had, because remember, this is at least 60 years later. So they'd been marrying, intermarrying with people of the land. And Ezra comes along as the new, the new Moses, as the new Aaron, to call God's people to faithfulness. And if we think back to the story of the Exodus... We should have a story that rings our, our, our bell right away. And that is actually a few stories. We get a few stories of God's people marrying or having intercourse and having families with peoples of the land. So think of the Midianites as they're about ready to cross over into the promised land. And the, the women of Midian come and seduce uh, Israel away into into relationship and into marriage and then into into idol worship into worshiping false gods and so this is when we when we read the whole section this is why it's important to to train ourselves to see some of these links because it helps us understand why certain sections are important. If we don't see the backdrop of the Exodus here, it just becomes a little bit of a, 
what does this have to do with me and with the larger story um, as far as what does intermarriage have to do with anything. But if we see the backdrop of the Exodus here, and I'm going to make one observation here that I think shows that um, very clearly, it begins to make not only more sense, it begins to take on more relevance for us, which I think is is important. So in the list of um, people that are are listed, you know, of having the, you know, being met, been married to, um, I'm in just the very beginning of, of chapter 9 here. So it, it says here in 9.1, after these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land. And again, we've seen that phrase repeated a whole bunch of times and we'll continue to see it repeated. And that means basically a non-covenant worshiping or a Yahweh worshiping covenant belonging Israelites. It's other people, right? Uh, the peoples of the land, with their abominations, as with their idol worship. And then he lists them here in uh, the, the end of verse 1. And from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. Now, what should strike us here, for sure, um, for sure, that this, this is meant to bring us back to the story of Exodus. Because some of these people groups that are listed, specifically the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, and the Ammonites, they were no longer in existence at this time. Let's just pause and think about that. From everything that we know, both in the historical record and in the story of Scripture, the Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and Ammonites did not exist anymore. Those were ancient people groups from the, the, the Near East, in the Middle East, at the time of Moses. That's a long time ago. A long time ago. If you take Moses to be in the 14-1500s, as most conservative scholars do, those are people groups from a thousand years ago. They don't exist anymore. And so the question is, why are they listed here? Uh, let alone Egyptians. Now, Egyptians still listed or existed, obviously, at that point. Um, we don't have any record anywhere else of Egyptians being there. I think clearly all of these people groups, the Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and Ammonites, they were all present together when the people of God came out of exile from, or out of bondage from Egypt and were going to cross into the promised land. And these are the groups, some of them, not all, but some of them, that pulled God's people into, into idolatry by intermarriage, uh, and by sexual relations and and other things, so by I'm gonna I'm gonna quote um, I'm actually just gonna quote a, co a commentary here that I used to to study this. So 
the commentator, his last name is Tronvaint, he says this, by taking action specifically against the marriages of Israel's old enemies of the wilderness and conquest periods, that's Moses and Joshua's day, a thousand years ago, the narrative seeks to reestablish in Ezra's day the conquest of the promised land, the otherwise inexplicable mention of the Egyptians to this, uh, to this list, list strengthens the reader's perception that this list is a kind of flashback to a similar situation that existed in the time of the first exodus. All that to say is when we get into the issue of intermarriage here, and really it's more about covenant faithfulness, the way that it's framed in the very beginning is meant to bring us back to the days of Moses and Joshua, of coming out of Egypt and coming into, into the promised land. And so, again, by making that connection and by making, by seeing those, those hyperlinks, what we're able to do then is to place this story actually in a, an important context in the broader story and make some really important observations that even then can apply to our own life. So one of them could be this. These people are just reliving the same thing, both positively and now here negatively. So we saw the anticlimax in the first section when they rebuilt the foundation of the temple and then they were weeping. Here's another kind of anticlimax that the new Moses has come and the new Joshua has come. And the new Aaron has come, in, all in one, in Ezra. He's this Moses figure who's proclaiming God's word. He's this Joshua figure who rested and is going to bring them back into the promised land. He's this Aaron figure, and he's this kind of high priest that's mediating God's word to his people. And yet, they are going to fail in the same way that the first generation did coming out of bondage. They are going to fall into the same problems, into the same issues. And now, they're going to take a different approach here. In Ezra's day, they're going to just throw out all of the women and the children. And they're going to basically separate these families. And that's what chapter 10 is about, is they're going to, they're going to make, remake their covenant with God. This is verse 3. And they're going to put away all this, the language, all of the wives and their children. And it says, according to the counsel of Ezra. So Ezra's solution is to actually just cast these people out. Now there's all kinds of different ways that we can, that we can read that um, and, again, wrestle. So I'm thinking about another prophetic... Um, contemporary of these people would be Malachi. And Malachi, he comes up and he says, God hates divorce. So here's Ezra saying, you need to divorce your wives and throw out your children because they are pulling you away from covenant faithfulness with God. And then you get the prophet at the same time in the same time period, saying that, no, 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 God hates divorce. You know, we have to read those two things side by side because they were happening side by side. And again, this is just to say that the scriptures 
and and stud, the studying scripture will not lead us into all the answers. It will lead us into deeper questions and pondering and relying on on God and the Spirit, driving us into into the place of prayer. But that the whole thing about intermarriage and whatnot is is framed in that Exodus narrative. And so they're reliving the same story, and we can then bring that forward even to our own day as we continue to make those same mistakes. Obviously not intermarriage, but about being pulled away into the things of the world, going back on our on covenant faithfulness with God, breaking His Word, and we continue to make the same cycles of mistakes as our parents did, as our grandparents did, and so on and so forth, and yet God's mercy remains, and yet God's faithfulness remains, and yet He continues to call us and to raise up people to call us back into His faithfulness. So we can we can make connections then even to our own lives, and we can surely make connections with a passage as seemingly as distant as they get when we're talking about intermarriage with, with people you know, that lived thousands of years ago, um, we can make connections between the larger story of, of Scripture. So that, that's what I'll say. Um, that's what I'll say about uh, intermarriage and whatnot. And that actually concludes uh, the book of Ezra for us. That's just where the book ends. So which is a, a pretty clear indicator, again, that Ezra and Nehemiah were meant to be um, meant to be together. So uh, next time when we come, we will begin Nehemiah 1 through 7, uh, which talks about the building of the walls. So thank you so much. I appreciate you coming, and I can't wait to uh, see you next time.